Welcome back. I am Jay Goodwin, and you're listening to Pay It Forward. This is special episode two, and I want to share some thoughts about what's going on in life and career and what I've been up to lately. I've taken close to three months off from the podcast, which is almost unbelievable. That was not my intention, but before I knew it, it was the middle of September. So I had beat myself up a little bit about, you know, not recording and releasing it as steadily as I was. And I decided maybe I would just break the usual format and release some low key episodes while I get back to uh, getting into that rhythm of recording and releasing. So to that end, here's my slate of topics that I want to muse about and just, you know, get off my chest. Uh, so up first is what I've been listening to and reading lately. Then the album that I just released and the story of you know how I came to it and wrote it. Then I'll talk about curiosity and what to do when you don't feel curious enough. This is something that I've dealt with for the longest time. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell and my takeaways from his talks as a strategist, uh, particularly his TED Talks. Um, I have also bought a couple of his books that I have not had a chance to dive into yet. Um, And finally, a book that I devoured in an afternoon, the day I got it, which is called The Inner Game of Tennis. And what I took away from it before my upcoming tennis league season, which starts tomorrow. Okay, so I figured I would actually start from the end. And by that, I mean that at the end of every podcast episode, I always ask my guests uh, what they are reading or consuming. So I want to start there. Actually, instead of what I've been reading, I'll talk about what I've been listening to first, and then I'll get back to what I've been reading. Um, So I guess uh, as far as listening, the first point is that I build all of my Spotify playlists. So first of all, I'm a huge Spotify user. That is my platform of choice. And I listen to a lot of playlists. And the way that I go about building playlists is that I base them on seasons. I started doing this when I spent the summer of 2017 in San Francisco. And ever since for every season change, I get a new playlist and I add in whatever I listen to for those couple of months as I go, kind of like a music time capsule. The second thing about what I listen to is that I listen to a lot of random stuff. I'm sure everybody does, but to give you an idea, uh, my spring summer 2021 playlist which I am now realizing should almost be closed since fall starts next week. Uh, Or actually, I don't know when I'm going to release this. So fall is starting soon, so I'll be starting a fall playlist. (laughs) But basically, my spring-summer playlist starts with J. Cole and Boz, and then it goes to Lil Nas X, John Mayer, Billie Eilish, Khalid, Diplo, there's Frank Sinatra, Imogen Heap, Leon Bridges, some more John Mayer, some Barry White, (laughs) some Debussy, Chopin and Jorak. You see, I'm getting into the classical already. Uh, and then it ends with some Coldplay and Donnell Jones for some reason. And there's a couple of people I left out, but you get the gist. The point is, every season, or I guess every two seasons, I start with one song. Whatever the first song is that's interesting enough uh, for me to add to, and it really sets the scene for the rest of the season in a way. But beyond the playlist of the season, there are two genres that earned more playtime than others lately. Classical music and house music. 
And there's something to be said for the gulf between the two genres. So on the one hand, you have this sort of prototypical gargantuan music. It's the music that dominated the art form for centuries and produced the composers that we all know as being some of the best musicians and thinkers of all time. I'm talking Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, Debussy, Chopin, Mahler, Mendelssohn, Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich. And obviously that's not the end-all be-all list, but those are the names at the top of my classical explorations playlist. And of those... Gustav Mahler rises to the top as my favorite composer. Uh, he's followed closely by Tchaikovsky. More about this later. But the thing that uh, the thing about it is that we think of classical music, the sonata, the concerto, the symphony is, you know, obviously it's like incredibly complex music. And the thing that strikes me most, because I've tried my hand at writing some cinematic and orchestral music, I might drop some in throughout this podcast, is... The way that the ideas are expressed, structured, and tied together. Here's me playing a really short snippet of a piano piece by Eric Sadie. that each instrument truly is independent and one theme or idea flows effortlessly from one instrument group to another is delicate uh, it's emotive and it is entirely based on emotional expression and the vision the composer has here is a piece that i wrote uh, called ballet sketch house music it really defined my high school and college experience uh especially when i was hanging out with friends uh it's the music that i would put on in my headphones as i went to the library in college and, and studied in the the basement of t coop it's the music that i usually listen to uh, when i was playing fifa with my roommate jonathan or when i was at the gym trying to drown out my <laughs> my grunts from lifting weights that i couldn't lift it's electronic it's thumping there's four on the floor with a kick drum. There's a bass pattern that almost makes you instinctively jump with it. And it turns out there's a term for this. It is called musical entrainment. It's the same instinct that makes you tap your foot to a good beat of rhythm. Um, the syncopated rhythms that dance around and, and create space for that kick drum. But most of all, it is a genre essentially built on looping sections and layering these looping sections onto each other to build and fall back and build again. But uh, between these two seemingly opposing genres, I found that there was some overlap. 
Now, you won't really find a loop in classical music, maybe a repeated section, uh, maybe a coda, but it is unlikely that you will find a strict loop in classical music. But you will find sections. And this is the part of the sonata in symphonic form. These idea statements, departures from those statements, and eventually the theme being restated again, right? Think ABA or for pop music, verse, chorus, verse. So to illustrate this point, here is Waltz in G major, work in progress, version two, that I wrote to show ABA form. So maybe there is a common thread between classical music and house music. Uh, maybe somebody will listen to this, roll their eyes, find me and tell me that I'm completely wrong. But that, you know, that's what I found. I said I would talk about Mahler before moving on to what I'm reading. Uh, Mahler is near the top of my list of favorite composers. I, I think he is my favorite composer. His symphonies are long. That's the only drawback. They're like an hour and a half. Um, but I haven't been as moved by other symphonies as I've been by Mahler's. And I'm talking specifically of Symphony 2 and Symphony 5. I like to think of Symphony 2 as the first classical music I ever listened to that had like a bass line. And uh, Symphony 5 as one of the most tragic things that I've ever heard. The adagio is, it makes me want to cry. And rounding out my list of favorite composers is uh, Chopin's Preludes and his Nocturnes, Debussy's Claire de Lune Suite, Brahms' Symphony Three, Tchaikovsky's Fifth and Sixth, and all of his ballets. <laughs> I like all of his stuff. Uh, Shostakovich's uh, Jazz Waltzes and Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto, although I listened to his Symphony One today and I liked it. And just because I'm feeling generous, here is uh, a piece I wrote after watching Queen's Gambit, entitled Queen's Gambit sketch. Mm -hmm. 
I'm still only wading into the giant uh, repertoire that is classical music, and I am sure that I will add more to this list as I continue. But enough about classical music talk. I want to share a little bit about the album that I just released. It is called Get Down. It is available now for streaming wherever you listen to your music. Um, So that is my shameless plug. But it is a house slash dance album. Um, There are nine songs. It's just over 35 minutes. And the album was almost entirely inspired by a couple of songs I heard as I was on an exercise bike listening to a playlist on Spotify called Housework. Um, and also a TikTok from a musician named Lomalo who made a house music song live on one of his TikToks. That song is called House Music Fanatic. So I'm listening to, I'm on the bike. I need to lose some weight. So I'm on this exercise bike in my building and I'm listening to this house music and it's like pumping. It's got me going. And I'm like, you know what? What if I can make some music like this? So I set out to write a house music album. Now, I don't listen to a lot of house music. And so there was definitely a learning process that I had to go to before I could start putting ideas down on paper. Um, I did have one song, which was titled, quote, Lo-Fi House One, unquote. But I didn't really know exactly what Lo-Fi House was or what it sounded like. That is, or it was just a placeholder name that I kind of had as I tried to figure that out. And for about two months, I had no idea what I was doing. And I got into a rut. I wasn't happy with anything I was writing. I was scrapping a lot of music. And it was a Sunday. um, And Tierra and I have this sort of tradition of visiting a new coffee shop on Sunday late mornings. And we ended up at this coffee shop called Bellwood Coffee, uh, where, I mean, it's a pretty awesome coffee shop. There's like plants around. And I remember sort of sitting at this coffee bar with all and just looking around and feeling like all of this life was in the room. And I was people watching. I had my notebook with me. I had a pen with me. And I was just trying to write down some ideas, take in what I saw. And I remember there was some song playing on, and I shazammed it. And, you know, that kind of got me inspired. And, and I sat down with my favorite gold pen and a filled notes notebook. And I kind of figured out and charted out what would make up this album. I basically listed out what I liked about house music, uh, some of the common elements that I thought I heard in house music, some of the instruments I heard, um, and basically tried to describe what makes house music house music. And then I listed out what tended to define my music. And then I tried filling in the middle of that Venn diagram. And I came home, I was energized, and I wrote two songs that night. Uh, so I said earlier that Get Down is a house music album, but that's not entirely true. It's not entirely a house music album. It really is an album that takes house music, the house music form, what we think is house music, or what I think is house music, and I tried to explore that from a couple of different directions. So I'm going to give you a rundown of the tracks. I'm not going to describe too much, but I'll, I'll try to give you an idea of what you might be listening to if you decided to play the album right now. So track one is called Comeback, and it's a prototypical house music song, although it, it does have a little bit of a difference. It has an extended sort of horn solo section in the middle that I sampled. Uh, track two is called Always, and it is straight up house music. 
Uh, but in track three, which is called Regretful Mission, or Lo-Fi House One, <laughs> as it was originally called, this one is a departure. So the thumping kick drum is exchanged for like a more percussive sound. There's an icy orchestra that leads the choruses. So, you know, again, classical music inspiration meets house music there. Jupiter is a synth wave song. So like not even a house song, kind of like you might hear if you were listening or playing an 80s uh, video game with a passionate solo breakdown in the middle. Uh, Party brings us back to that typical house and sets the level again. Rainy Saturday Windows is an interlude and the final departure before returning back to house music in Walk Away, which is track seven. Uh, after that is Can You Feel Me, which is a synthy, high-energy song that never loses its energy. It's always on 100. And then we close with the title track, Get Down, which is really a jazz band masquerading as a house track. So I figured out all of that in the essence of the album and the story that I wanted to tell when I was sitting at Bellwood Coffee on July 18th. And a month later, the album was written, mixed, mastered, and released. So... Uh, basically what I wanted to get across by giving that kind of breakdown is that those same forces that I described in classical music. So stating a main theme, taking departures from that theme, coming back to that theme, but in a different way, departing again and then sort of restating it is kind of what I tried to do when I broke down what house music was or what I thought it was, and then tried to attack it at a couple different angles. So it really does sort of start with house music take a departure, come back to house music, take another departure, and then come back home. So that is the story of the last month and a half, two months of my life writing an album that I didn't really know I wanted to write until I found myself writing it. And now I'll I'll go back to what I mentioned at the top, which was what I've been reading lately. Um, So right now there's a couple of books on the docket. Uh, I most recently finished... The Inner Game of Tennis, which I read the day I got it <laughs> from Amazon. I read it in about two or three hours. I'll, t- I'll actually talk about that last. Um, but the other thing I'm reading is that I- I've slowly been rereading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. So I first read this book, I think at some point in high school. And, you know, rereading it is such a cool experience because I get to see the pages that I dog-eared, the notes and questions that I was scribbling in the margins, the passage that I that I bracketed. And, you know, I really did spend a lot of time marking up this book in high school. So it has been really interesting for me to see what I thought was interesting, what questions I was asking myself as I was reading certain passages. And it really is as impactful as it was the first time I read it. And I'm only about a fourth of the way through this round. And uh, the last sort of set of books on the docket is um, Malcolm Gladwell. I've been listening and reading a lot of his stuff lately. Um, I've been on a, on a TED Talk binge, basically, and I don't remember what started it. Uh, but there was a TED Talk he gave about spaghetti sauce. And then there was another one about David and Goliath. And before I knew it, I had like eight tabs of hour and a half talks from him. And I am really just in awe of his mind, how he thinks and how he expresses his ideas um, and how he tells a story that tells a story. So next on my list, after I finish Invisible Man, 
is Talking to Strangers, Blink, and Outliers, all by Malcolm Gladwell. And I'll actually come back to him in a second. But before I do, I want to talk about curiosity and what to do when you don't feel curious enough. So since we were just talking about Malcolm Gladwell, uh, the reason that I thought this was a, a logical next step to talk about is because when you when you see somebody who is so brainy and so smart that they inspire you and you want to just read everything and it just felt like I had this moment where I was wondering, you know, I don't, I don't, there, there's not too many topics where I could give an hour and a half long talk and you would want to sit through it. You would be engaged for the whole thing. And just by my sheer enthusiasm and passion on the stage, you felt like it was something you had to listen to and had to go look up after the talk was over. I don't feel like I have too many topics like that. And in this industry, I feel like everywhere you look, curiosity is is basically used as like a currency, right? It's like, it's how you get to better briefs. It's how you uncover interesting insights about the people you want to buy your product or do whatever it is you want them to do. It's how you figure out what's going on. It's how you get to better ideas. Questions, questions, questions. It's like the first question or, or, or the first description you'll see on any any job applications. We want curious thinkers. We want people who will ask questions and all this kind of stuff. But I I think that I'm a curious person, generally. Um, I think it depends on the situation, but I found myself in a lot of situations, uh, and I've noticed it a little bit more lately, where I just don't even know where to begin to even ask a question. I, I just find myself sitting there just feeling kind of empty inside and and thinking about the fact that I don't have any thoughts to contribute. And that's really a gut-riching feeling, um, especially for a strategist, because I'm supposed to have thoughts and opinions and a point of view on things. And if I'm sitting there and I don't feel like I have thoughts or feelings or opinions or a point of view, I'm not really doing my job. And I go back and forth because maybe I'm being a little too harsh on myself. Um, I generally do have thoughts and opinions and a point of view on things. If I'm given time to think before I have to give that those thoughts and feelings and point of view. And I guess what I decided that I was really pointing to was thinking on the spot. Some people are really good at this. Some aren't so good. And I think that I fall in the latter camp and this is where I think Malcolm Gladwell comes back into the picture a little bit. Because if you watch any of his talks, and I'm sure that his books are similar, you'll notice that he spends a lot of time talking about a topic. Spaghetti sauce. David and Goliath. Until he's not actually talking about that topic. He's talking about something completely different. And to me, again, as a strategist, that means a lot. Because if you talk to any strategist, and ask them what makes a good brief. I guarantee you that within their first three to five points, they'll say it frames up the problem in a new way, or it reveals the real problem behind the problem. And that's what I think Gladwell's talks, and I'm assuming his books do. That's how he makes his argument. He talks to you about spaghetti sauce until he's not talking to you about spaghetti sauce. He's really talking about creating consumer choices and who gets to make decisions for people who buy things and functions of capitalism. So 
If you are like me and you find yourself stuck in your own head sometimes in these situations, ask yourself this. What is really going on? And why do I feel like I don't have anything worthy to contribute? Because chances are you can figure it out. For me, when I actually sat back and asked myself, you know, why do I feel so empty in these situations? And why am I being so hard on myself about it? It came down to overinflated ego, a lack of preparation, and a general expectation that I should be further along than I am. And so I'll take a second and unpack that. By overinflated ego, I mean that for some reason in these moments where, you know, we're we're in a team call, we're, we're hashing something out, and there's a lull in the conversation. For some reason in those moments, I imagine that I'm supposed to take my glasses off, stroke my non-existent beard, and impart some crucial wisdom so everybody in the room just sits back and just says, wow, damn, that's right, Jay. But that's never really been me. (laughs) And I don't know where that expectation came from other than me finally getting the strategist job that I had been aiming for for close to four years Um, And letting that word go to my head, that word strategist. And by lack of preparation, I mean that, you know, if I've already acknowledged that I might not do my best thinking on my feet in the moment, having prep time means I can stew on it. I can I can deliberate. I can develop a point of view. I can put some thoughts together. You're putting yourself at a disadvantage by not asking for those details on whatever the topic is in advance, if that's how your brain works. And then the general expectation that I should be further along kind of ties right back into that overinflated ego, right? It's like when you start something new, you generally don't expect to be great at it right away. In sports, in music, you take lessons from a coach or a tutor who is an expert. They break it down for you. They give you the building blocks, right? But for some reason at work, I wasn't willing and kind of still am not willing to take that ego hit that comes along with starting a new job in a new capacity. There's always going to be a learning curve and you're not supposed to have all the answers straight away. And so maybe this, uh, this little piece in the episode right here was just some therapy for me. But if you identify with any of that at all, give yourself some credit. Okay. The final thing I want to share with you is all about this book called the inner game of tennis subtitled, The Classic Guide to the Mental Side of Peak Performance. It's a book by W. Timothy Galway. I read this book the day I got it from front to back. I could not put it down. I had to throw away a highlighter when I was finished because it didn't have anything else to give. I figured it was time I put some effort into improving my mental game on court because tennis is all fun and games until you hit one too many double faults and your opponent has break point and one error leads to more and more Um, and it it is just, everybody acknowledges that tennis is a mental game, but I don't think anybody actually tells you what you need to do to start improving your mental game because you can hit the greatest strokes in the world, but once you miss a couple of those, you're going to start to get in your own head. And, you know, in tennis, it's a solitary sport. There's just you and your opponent on the court. And often it's more you beating yourself than your opponent beating you. I have been playing tennis off and on for some years now. My dad started playing tennis when I was about 12 years old and I would visit him for two weeks every summer 
and a couple of times I'd see him throughout the year and we would always play tennis. So I was generally aware of the game. I loved Roger Federer, uh, but I never took it seriously and I wish that I did. And when I moved to Atlanta, I started playing more more with my dad, some coworkers, some friends. Uh, and now I have four rackets, <laughs> a ball machine, a caddy that's full of tennis balls, at least eight sets of Nike Heritage tennis t-shirts, shorts, Adidas shoes, and like five Roger Federer hats and a couple of his t-shirts. It is ridiculous. I have way too much tennis gear. And I started playing competitively. And last season was my first uh, season in a league, and I placed fourth, which is okay. Everybody was kind of like happy for me, but in my mind, I was like, you know what? There was at least two matches I think I should have won. I would have been in second place, only the top two make the playoffs, and I, and I kind of went down this whole spiral like, I'm fourth place, you don't even get a medal for that. And, and it, there was, I started to realize that there's a lot more questions of self-value that come up when you play a solitary sport. And so that's kind of the reason I bought the book. I'm starting this new season this weekend, um, and I wanted to make sure that I'm putting my best foot forward. And so without giving you a book report, I want to talk about some of the themes that really stuck with me um, and what I'll try to implement on and off the court going forward. So first, I guess we should just talk about what is the inner game. So the book calls it the game that takes place in the mind of the player and it is played against such obstacles as lapses in concentration, nervousness, self-doubt, and self-condemnation. So quick check, have you felt any of that ever going through life? Yeah, me too. So basically the book's entire main point is that no matter how perfect your game is, you will not be at your best unless you play with a relaxed concentration and you don't try too hard. You just let it happen. That sounds counterintuitive, I know, I had the same thought, but really by not trying too hard, what, what I think he really means is over trying. So it's when you're giving yourself instructions in every moment or motion, thinking too much and just not letting your body do what it needs to do. In short, it's really the act of not trusting yourself. So let me ask you this, have you ever noticed uh, in your mental dialogue with yourself just going throughout the day your mental narrative, that there may be two people. There's usually the one self that's doing the talking, the teller, barking all the orders, giving reminders, criticizing every little thing. And then there's the self on the other end, the doer, taking all those orders, being demeaned, talked down to. That's the self that doesn't talk back. That's your body, your experience. Um, and the book really challenges us to think about who these two selves are. If self one is the teller, your ego, self two is the doer, your body, your experience, your gut, your intuition. And the first key to unlocking that key state of relaxed concentration is to improve the relationship between these two selves. Okay, so talking about how we talk to ourselves, that kind of thing. The second key is essentially stoicism. Part of what makes for a bad mental game is the judgments self one puts on everything that happens. I just made a judgment when I said it's a bad mental game, right? So quote, that's a terrible forehand. God, my backhand sucks today. Or my personal favorite, I can't hit a serve today to save my life. I've said all three of those things out loud during matches and during practice. <laughs> and 
These are all judgments, and judgments are self-fulfilling the more they are made. So what the book suggests is removing these judgments from the equation altogether and simply observing what happens with an objective interest. So instead of keep your stupid wrist loose on the serve, it becomes my wrist didn't snap as much as it could on that last one. A lot of the book continues to talk about shifting perception from one of judgment to objective interest, not positive or negative talk. And one thing that was interesting is that he sort of pointed you away from positive talk just as he pointed you away from negative talk. And think of it this way. When you give yourself positive affirmations after hitting a good shot, you might feel positive in the moment, but inevitably you're going to hit a shot that isn't as great. And what you have done is effectively the same thing that you do with negative talk. You've set the bar at a place where you could fall short of. And when you do fall short of it, you're going to think back to that great shot and say, why couldn't I hit it like that? Why can't I hit all my shots like that? And again, there you are making judgments and you're going to end up in the same place that you end up with the negative self-talk. The last thing I'll bring up from the book is the concept of winning and competition and self-value, which is, I kind of alluded to earlier when I talked about me placing fourth in my first season and feeling like if I didn't get first or second and make the playoffs, then it wasn't even worth it. We live in a society that places huge amounts of importance on being the best. Uh, check out the new Netflix documentary called Breakpoint uh, with Marty Fish to see this in real life with American men's tennis in the 90s and 2000s. The consequence of that is that losing is, in effect, an attack on our self-worth and our value to society. No one wants to hang out with losers, and no one remembers the losers. But the book kind of reframes this and argues that true competition is cooperation. And if you think of it that way, that takes a lot of pressure off of, the, of competition. I'll come back to this in a second, but really quick. Also, when we think about winning, there's, there's a lot of different motivations for winning. There's winning for yourself. There's winning for others. There's winning for the sake of winning. Um, and... I think we would all do well to evaluate when we do things competitively or for fun. What does winning mean to us and why do we want to win in the first place? And I think obviously no one wants to lose, but I think if you evaluate why you want to win, that will tell you more about yourself. Okay. Back to my other train of thought. Quote, each player tries their hardest to defeat the other, but in this use of competition, it isn't the other person we are defeating. It is simply a matter of overcoming the obstacles the opponent presents, unquote. So there you have it. If we reframe competition to cooperation, first of all, it takes the pressure off. And second of all, you get a new appreciation for what you're trying to accomplish and what the person on the other side of the net is trying to accomplish. Because... If you're like me and you have a one-handed backhand, it's generally seen as a weakness and people will target it. And the more people target it, the better it gets. So in a way, it's good that they're targeting it because the more they target, the better my one-hander has to become, the better I become. And in that situation, competition really is cooperation. They're helping me get better by making me get better. And that's kind of what I've been up to for the past months. And I look forward to releasing the next <laughs> podcast back in an interview format so it's not just me talking. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this. 
Thank you for listening. If you made it all the way to the end, please comment on Instagram so I know who the real ones are. Until next time, peace.